Jesus not, but his disciples. He left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he must needs pass through Samaria. So he cometh to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour, which is noon. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman therefore saith unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest the drink of me, who am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked him and he would give thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Whence then hast thou this living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well, and drank thereof himself, and his sons, and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Every one that drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water, springing up, unto eternal life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come all the way hither to draw. Jesus saith unto her, Go, call thy husband, and come hither. The woman answered and said unto him, I have no husband. Jesus saith unto her, Thou saidest well, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. This hast thou said truly. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall ye worship the Father. Ye worship that which ye know not, we worship that which we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such doth the Father seek to be his worshippers. God is the Spirit, and they that worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, he that is called Christ. When he is come, he will declare unto us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. And when this came, and upon this came his disciples, and they marveled that he was speaking with a woman. Yet no man said, Why? Uh, what seekest thou, or why speakest thou with her? So the woman left her water pot and went away into the city and saith to the people, Come, see a man who told me all things that ever I did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the city and were coming to him. In the meanwhile, the disciples prayed him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that ye know not. The disciples therefore said unto one another, Hath any man brought him something to eat? Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to accomplish his work. Say not ye, There are yet four months, and then cometh the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, Lift up your eyes, and look on the fields, that they are white already unto harvest. He that reapeth receiveth wages, and gathereth fruit unto eternal life, that he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. For herein is the saying true, One soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap that whereupon ye have not labored. Others have labored, and ye are entered into their labor. And thus far, the reading of God's word. 
when I thought about what I should present to you in this afternoon's service following up my remarks this morning about our guilty silence, it seemed to me I could fall into two equally dangerous errors. One would be to simply relate to you some categorical or general truths from God's Word about evangelizing that would be true enough in themselves but which would not really help you to overcome the practical difficulties that stand in the way of opening your mouth on that first occasion or many first occasions with individuals and saying something about Jesus Christ. In other words, I would be too general. Scriptural, but not pointed enough to help you. The other error, which would be, uh, I think, equally uh, dangerous, would be to become so specific that I end up giving you what many people do in evangelism courses, I'm sorry to say, nothing more but good human advice as to how you can manage your evangelistic um, uh, opportunities. That is, give you uh, cute little things to say and, and little devices whereby you might be able to evangelize, which would be very pointed and perhaps very helpful, but then would lack scriptural warrant. So what I chose to do is to try to do the very difficult thing and um, analyze for myself why it is you and me have difficulty talking to people about being a Christian and find scriptural answers for those difficulties. So I'm going to try to give uh, my perception of what you need, what I need, to get us over the hump, as it were, to get talking about the Lord, but to give you scriptural advice for how to do that. And we have in this passage before us Jesus' encounter with the woman at the Samaritan well, obviously a model of evangelism. Jesus is the one in whose steps we should follow, and we see how he confronted this woman, and I think we learned some valuable things from this, and I will be making allusion to it as we go through uh, these suggestions that we have uh, today, but I'm going to be looking at a number of passages as well. So how do we overcome our guilty silence. How do we get to the point where we feel free to say something to a neighbor or to an acquaintance, somebody we work with, a relative? How do we get to the point where we can say what needs to be said and generate a conversation that will be evangelistic? All right, I'm going to give you six suggestions here. If you're taking notes, you may want to uh, follow that way. And the first one will not appear to you directly relevant, but I think it may psychologically hold the key for us. And so turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Chronicles 16, verses 8 and 9. 1 Chronicles 16, verses 8 and Okay, in the 16th chapter then of 1 Chronicles, at the 8th verse, we read, O give thanks unto Jehovah, call upon his name, make known his doings among the peoples, sing unto him, sing praises unto him, talk ye of all his marvelous works. In the same light, turn it to Psalm 9, verse 11, the ninth Psalm, verse 11. Sing ye praises to Jehovah who dwelleth in Zion. Declare among the people his doings. Also Isaiah 12, verses 4 to 6. Isaiah 12, verses 4, 5, and 6. 
And in that day shall ye say, Give thanks unto Jehovah, call upon his name, declare his doings among the peoples. Make mention that his name is exalted. Sing unto Jehovah, for he hath done excellent things. Let this be known in all the earth. Cry aloud and shout thou, inhabitant of Zion, for great in the midst of thee is the Holy One of Israel. And then one more text in the same vein, Jeremiah 51, verse 10. Jeremiah 51, 10. Jehovah hath brought forth our righteousness. Come, let us declare in Zion the work of Jehovah our God. What do all these passages have in common that we've been looking at? What is it that each of these passages bids us to do? These passages call on us to declare God's wondrous works in Zion among his people. You say, well, now wait a minute. This is supposed to be practical biblical pointers on evangelism. Evangelism isn't talking to God's people. Evangelism is talking to those who aren't yet God's people. People we want to become God's people. That's true. But I told you, I think that the key to learning how to speak to others about the saving mercies of God may be found in this first pointer, and that's learning how to say these things to God's people. One of the reasons we have difficulty speaking about serious matters in a culture that doesn't like anybody to get serious, one of the reasons we have trouble bringing up things of the Lord with others is because we don't really have the habit of bringing them up at all. And if we're not accustomed to talking about the things of the Lord and saying very deep and maybe very personal and very heavy matters, then we are least likely to do that with those that we expect a negative response from. You see what I'm getting at here? I'm saying that the reason we are hesitant to talk to unbelievers is because we're not in the habit of talking at all about what God has done in our life. And what the scripture says is, learn to tell God's people what you're happy about. Learn to declare his wondrous works among his own people. In Zion declare what God has done. Show his mercy and grace and power there. So that if we made a habit of every week talking about these things to the people at church, declaring publicly how grateful we are that God has saved us from our sins, you know, we tend to think that, well, I mean, that's taken for granted, right? I can't bring a prayer request like that up. Why not? Why can't we come to church and say, you know, this week God has really um, brought home to my heart the sweetness of belonging to him. And I know I wouldn't if he hadn't done that work in my life. If we made a request like that, if we talked that way to people here at church, then it would become part of our nature. Maybe our second nature. It would become habitual. We wouldn't feel uncomfortable talking about these things. These things sound dramatic. These things sound personally heavy. And it's hard for us to overcome our natural uh, American reserve about that sort of matter. We don't like to talk about deep personal things with one another. It's considered gauche. It's not really, you know, to be with it. It's to open yourself up to the risk of being ridiculed. And so we don't do that naturally. And I want to suggest that the way God's people learn to open their mouths and talk to others is by first opening their mouths and talking to each other. We need to start talking to one another and thanking God for our conversion and for what God has done in saving us to one another. And if we do that, then after learning to do this among believers, 
we won't find it nearly as hard to flip that switch and start talking that way to unbelievers. But I want to suggest that you will not start talking to unbelievers about these things until you have learned first to do it with believers. That that is the most unlikely place to overcome your natural reserve and shyness. Okay, so point one, learn to speak among believers, among believers of God's wondrous works. Point number two, a good place to begin when you talk with unbelievers, a good place to begin is to speak of your gratitude and praise to God. Turn to Psalm 18, verse 49. Psalm 18, 49. Therefore I will give thanks unto thee, O Jehovah, among the nations, and will sing praises unto thy name. When David goes out among the nations, among the Gentiles, in the midst of those who are unbelievers, he says, I will give thanks and praise unto Jehovah. We hesitate to speak to unbelievers because we figure if I tell them something personal about themselves, they may get offended. And they might. And we hesitate to declare something of theological controversy and truth to unbelievers because they might not agree and they might dispute it and they might. But you know, it's very difficult, not impossible, but very difficult for an unbeliever to have that initial response of negativity and challenge when where you begin is thanking God. It seems so inappropriate, even if they don't believe in your God, for them to say, oh, well, you, I can't believe that, because you see, you didn't ask them to believe anything. And, well, I don't think you're saying the truth about me, because you haven't said anything about them as yet, although by implication you probably are. What I'm suggesting is, now, I should have said this at the beginning too, and this is a good time uh, to remind you if I hadn't said it already. I don't envision evangelism as a four-minute presentation of a factory-produced line that you give to everybody you run into. And so I'm not saying, okay, now that you've gone out there, first step, you know, first spiritual law, I thank God for what he's done for me. No, I'm not suggesting anything like that. I mean, if you had such a standardized approach, that might be worth considering. But no, I'm talking about your overall approach to that person you're working with or to your next-door neighbor, to one of your relatives. Where you want to begin to insert the needle of the gospel, I think, is with praise to God for what he's done. If they see that in you first of all, then I think you disarm them. You disarm them because you haven't come on like, you know, some kind of a... Uh, bull in a china closet and start stepping on their feelings and challenging them and being antagonistic and wanting to debate, you're simply expressing what is really in your heart of hearts, your own religious outlook on life by thanking God, praising Him. Point number three, among those who are your acquaintances and especially your family, you need to let the mercy of Christ in your own life be expressed in your own life, the mercy of Christ. In Mark 5, 19, we saw this this morning in our message, but I want to bring another point out from it. In Mark 5, 19, you notice that Jesus not only sends the, um, the demoniac that he has healed back to his acquaintances and friends, those who knew his previous life and with whom he might be most embarrassed, but notice what the emphasis was supposed to be in his message. 
he suffered him not, but saith unto him, Go to thy house and to thy friends, and tell them, what? How great things the Lord hath done for thee, and how he had mercy on thee. It's not inappropriate in our evangelistic presentation to speak of the general call of the gospel, how God uh, makes an offer of salvation and that he requires men to respond to that offer in, in repentance and faith and to come to him. There is that general appeal. But I tend to think that is better in mass settings. I think that's when we preach from the pulpit or out on the streets. When you're talking to another individual, I think it is very helpful to do what Jesus says here. Go and stress what God has done for you. You see, I know my previous life, and if you're talking to somebody who's known you very long, they may know it too. You know my previous life, and what you want to thank God for is that he saved me. He showed compassion on me. He was merciful to me. When I couldn't do anything to save myself, he saved me. Then again, that isn't to say people couldn't jump in and say, well, of course, that assumes that there is a God, that assumes that he's sovereign, that assumes that you're a sinner, that assumes so many things about the Bible and a number of other matters, but that isn't what people usually do. At this point, what can't, again, it's disarming. You've left them in a passive position. You've said, I can't dispute this. God has done something for me, and I want to praise him for the mercy that he's shown me in my life. I think you'll find that emphasis upon your own experience, my next point here, that emphasis upon your own experience is valuable even in the midst of a hostile audience. See, I was talking about people who wouldn't jump in and be hostile, but now look at John 9.25 for a good illustration of a hostile audience where a man was to give testimony to Jesus. Jesus has healed this blind man, but he's done it on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees are now coming to the man who is healed and accusing him of uh, all sorts of things and interrogating him about this one who healed him. Verse 25 says, He therefore answered, Whether he is a sinner, I know not. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, but now I see. You know, I'm not talking here about what proves the gospel. You see, subjective opinions can't do that. But if you're trying to open a door to have a person listen to the gospel, how can they argue with that? Now, of course, we have an open, objective, public case here of a man who couldn't see and now could, but the same principle applies in your own life. You say, well, I know you're hostile, and I know I probably can't answer to your satisfaction all your questions, but I can tell you this that I was once lost and had no idea what I was living for and was fearful of death, and I no longer am. I was once blind, and now I see. Now, you'll have to figure that out. Maybe you have some psychological explanation for it, but my emphasis at this point is upon what has actually happened in my life. Now, my next point is that in doing that, you will find it easier to emphasize your own guilt before God. And the reason I've taken such a long time to getting to this is because I really think that's what people resent in our evangelistic witness, and that's what worries us about making an evangelistic witness, the subject of guilt. Because that means we have to point an accusing figure. And nobody likes to be told that they're wrong. Nobody likes to be told that they're out of step with God, that they're not right with God. And so if you take the approach that I've been laying out for you, then the most natural thing in the world is to talk first about your guilt. And in so doing that, 
the person who listens to you will draw the inference that they fit into that same pattern too. Now, they don't always do it immediately, and I don't mean to say they'll come around and say, oh, well, that applies to me too then. But that happens. Psychologically, they'll say, well, I'm like this person. If this person felt guilty, shouldn't I feel guilty? If this person is praising God for what he did in their life, then maybe that's what I should be interested in too. And in John, the fourth chapter, verse 29, which we just read, I think we see an example of this. The woman that Jesus met at the well goes back and speaks to others and says, Come see a man who told me all things that ever I did. I've often meditated on that. You know, she didn't go and say, Come see a man who can tell you what you've done wrong. I want you to come meet Jesus because, boy, he'll embarrass you. He'll make you look just that small. Come on out. This would be a lot of fun. Of course, people aren't interested in that. But they do need to know that they're guilty. And, you know, this woman had a reputation. She's just like the demoniac in that way, although the demoniac had a different kind of reputation. She was known in town. You say, well, how do you know that? I mean, we don't have any social statistics and reports. I know that because she came to draw water at the wrong time of the day. That's how I know that. She came at the sixth hour, which I reminded you is noon. People don't, going out, don't go out from the city to Jacob's well in the hottest part of the day to draw their water. They go in the cool of the morning and in the evening. This woman came out because she was a fallen woman. She didn't want to go out when the, all the crowds were there and she'd be exposed to their ridicule. She went out when she could be alone. And Jesus, of course, confronts her with her sin. But you see how Jesus does that? And we have a tendency, because we're Calvinists, I think, because we don't want to uh, downplay the gospel and the sharpness of the gospel. And I think you know me well enough to realize I don't believe in that either. But you see, when Jesus confronted this woman about her guilt, look at the way he did so. The way in which the needle is inserted doesn't take away the fact the needle's inserted, but it was very gentle. Jesus could have said, oh, I, I know why you're out here at noon. You must be some kind of fallen woman. Your sexual mores must be the worst. You probably need a savior. No, he didn't. He, when he engages her in what she's interested in, water. Of course, he immediately takes it beyond the sphere of what she understood and starts talking about living water and how he could provide that. Well, now she wants to go, and he says, come bring your husband. Jesus knows this woman's life. He knows that that very nice invitation is indictment enough. He also knows she's going to try to squirm out of it. And she says, oh, well, I haven't got a husband. And now, you see, she's opened herself up. Jesus hasn't had to come like gangbusters and say, oh, you fallen, nasty person. He said, bring your husband. She says, I haven't got a husband. Jesus says, that's true, isn't it? You've had five. And the man you're living with now isn't your husband. And then the woman at the well does what is a very natural human thing to do, in which the people to whom you speak over a long term or in a very short period of time will do as well. And you need to know this and you need to follow Jesus' example. When she is put on the spot about her guilt, she then wants to talk theology. She says, oh, well, you know, there's this debate that I've heard about between the Samaritans and the Jews. Samaritans say we're supposed to worship up here, but the Jews say we're supposed to worship down in Mount Zion. And now you must be a prophet. I mean, you know all these things about me. What's the truth on this? She wants to, you see change the issue. She wants to avoid this, and Jesus turns it right around 
brings it home to his own identity and her obligation to worship God in spirit and truth right then as well. But now the woman having been indicted, she goes out, and would you expect her to go out and say, Jesus can tell you all about the nasty things in your life. Come hear him. No, she comes, she says, come see a man who told me everything about myself. Do you understand the psychology that's there? Now, I don't know whether she was reflective about this, but it's valuable to take that example anyway. You see, she doesn't go out and say, I'll bet you have a lot of things, a lot of skeletons in your closet you wouldn't want to be exposed. So come on out, Jesus will show you what he can do. She says, rather, I was guilty. You know me, you know my reputation. I met a man who knew all about it and cared for me anyway. Come see a man who told me everything about myself. And so if you, in like manner, emphasize your own guilt before God, rather than sounding like some self-righteous condemner of the one to whom you're speaking, I think you will find it easier to speak. You will be humble, I trust, not a false humility. You will be humble in the eyes of your hearer, and you will also get to the point that is the toughest in evangelism, guilt, without having to be just you know, coming on like gangbusters in a way that's going to scare them off or provoke some kind of negative response. You may still get a negative response. I'm not telling you humanly how you can change a heart. But I am telling you that the way in which people respond often does have something to do with our approach to them. And so my suggestion is approach them emphasizing how you were a sinner, how you had these things that were wrong with your life, and God loved you anyway and took care of your problem. And then my final suggestion before I give you some preparation homework, my final suggestion from the Bible is to make sure that your witness is motivated not by antagonism or argument, but by a genuine love for your hearer. I don't think there's anyone here, I don't think there's anyone who's truly a Christian that would ever say or intend to go out and say, I'm going to evangelize because I want to argue with somebody. I want to evangelize because I want to show that I can you know, beat them in an argument. While nobody would intend to do that, and nobody would want that to be the case, I think we have to stop and ask ourselves sometimes why we react the way we do when we're evangelizing. And it's at that point that I do think we find wormed into our heart, unintentionally, the desire to dominate our opponent and to show them that they're wrong. And those are not worthy motives. I say that as a person who studies apologetics, perhaps more prone than anybody else to be in a situation where winning the argument is important. And we can even say, well, winning the argument for the glory of God's important. And, of course, there's a sense in which that's true. But the reason why we evangelize people is not to show them that we can beat them intellectually. You stop and think about a boxer. You know, a boxer who goes out to the middle of the ring and finds an opponent who is weaker than him and starts beating and beating and beating on him. He's just going to back that guy into his corner and make him defensive, right? But you see, in evangelism, we don't want to beat people back into their corner and make them stand off in that corner at all costs. We want to draw them out into the middle, away from their defensive corner. And the only way we can do that is if we approach them not antagonistically, not argumentatively, but in love. And it's amazing. It's a passage you've heard many times, but in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, what does he sound like? A sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. You know why people kind of react to us? As though we have cacophonous sounds, clanging sounds, a harsh sound. 
It's because we have spoken to them, maybe with the tongues of men and angels, with brilliant arguments, a tremendous approach that we've worked out, but it hasn't been with love. And the reason why we evangelize people is because we want them to share our faith and not continue to debate our faith with us. So these are some scriptural pointers that I'm giving you to help you overcome that uh, hesitation, that shyness to speak to people. And they're all important. They all must be done. And I expect them to start being done today. What you must do is to develop the habit, first of all, of speaking among believers of God's saving mercies. Secondly, when you start with unbelievers, praise God. Show that you have a thankful spirit toward God. In particular, that you're thankful for the mercy he has shown you. And even in a hostile audience, remember, that they can't dispute that you were once blind, but now you see. That your life's been turned around by this, and they have to take account of that. Emphasize your own guilt before God as a way of getting to the subject of sin. And make sure that as you talk to the person, that you're doing it out of humble love, and not out of a desire to dominate, not out of antagonism or argument. If you will, every day of your life, look at those suggestions and others that might be added, you will change. But now, it may be that you came this afternoon thinking, oh, I didn't want something that was a discipline. I didn't want something that called for a change of attitude and practice and, and going through preparation and so forth. I wanted a little pill I could take that would make me evangelistic. Well, you came to the wrong place. There are no such pills. There's no easy fix to become an evangelist. It's a lifestyle. And the lifestyle that I'm suggesting to you here, I think, will make you a more effective one and will actually overcome your fear of talking to people if you'll do these things. But then we have to make proper preparation as well. I want to suggest that there are at least four things that you should be doing if you want to overcome your silence. And the first, I'm not trying to plug my own field of endeavor, but the first is you need to work out apologetical answers to common objections. You don't need to work out the answers to these sophisticated philosophers that I sometimes have to write about or speak to. But you do have to have answers for the common objections that you are going to encounter. Okay, now in our church, um, we have plenty of facilities to help you do this. Uh, we have papers back here that uh, Doug has done. He's talked to you last month about um, our approach to apologetics. I'm available. Jim's available. There's a lot of literature and talent here to help you do this. So talk to these people. Say, well, now, when they say, if there's a God, how come there's war? Then you can figure out an answer, a brief, to the point, solid answer to that sort of thing. And when you do evangelize and run into problems and you haven't got a ready answer, find the answer. Call me. Call Jim. Check with others who read and specialize in this area. But you need to do this first and foremost, I think, because 1 Peter 3.15 says you are to be prepared to give an answer to every man who asks you. Now, we live in a day and age that emphasizes intellect, truth, and that Christianity is for people who are superstitious and backwards. That's our, that's our zeitgeist. That's the spirit of our day, of our age. That being true, one of the reasons why you're so hesitant to speak to people is because you're afraid you'll get caught short. That you'll say something and they'll challenge it and you won't know how to answer. Okay? A little common sense will tell you what to do about that. 
prepare answers to the objections. And then when the people bring them up, you say, oh, well, here's the answer to that. Hopefully you won't give it as a pat answer or in a way like, oh, well, that's number 39 on my list. And no, you have to do it with some finesse. But the fact is, if you're confident that there are answers, you won't be hesitant about people bringing them up. In fact, to tell you the truth, since this is an area that I specialize in, you'll welcome people doing it. You say, good, bring up these things. Says, I've studied that. Now you see, I'm on familiar ground. I like you to bring up those objections that I've worked on because I know how to deal with those. So that's the first thing in making preparation. Secondly, and this too should be common sense, but people don't do it, and so I'm going to tell you, make a summary of your Christian faith and now what you're saying is, oh, no, I don't need to do that. I've got it all up here. No, I'm afraid you don't have it all up here because if you had it all up here, you wouldn't be so hesitant to speak. One of the, the things I run into all the time in evangelistic hesitation is, well, what do I say? Well, I think you need to develop what to say, and I'm going to suggest that you do it in two ways. First of all, all of us need to have a brief, very brief summary of the heart of the gospel. And we need to have mastered it, be able to speak it frontwards and backwards if need be. And there are three that I personally have found helpful, but any number in the Bible would work. John 3.16, clearly. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's all there. Much more could be said, but it's all there. Sometimes that opportunity is going to come up to give an answer to finally get to the heart of it all, but you're not going to have all day to do it. You're not going to be able to say, get out your Bible, and let's go through 80 verses together. Now, in fact, before you get to that stage, you may need to show them what it's all about so that you, they have interest to follow that up. And if you don't have a brief way of putting it, and what happens, and this is very inefficient, I sympathize with you, but I know you'll all be embarrassed when I say, what happens is we say, well, it's just, there's just so much to say, I don't know where to begin. Don't ever be in that situation. When you have an opportunity to begin, begin. And if that means John 3.16 and a few comments on it, be ready with John 3.16. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. You need to be able to tell people how this applies to their life. Very briefly, another one, 2 Corinthians 5.21, for God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. There's the substitutionary atonement, and we can go on and on in terms of implications, but one of those three verses or another one that you may find easy for you to use, memorize it. Oh, I know, this is a day you don't do any memorizing. Memorize at least this much, would you? So that when the opportunity arises, you can quote that verse and not say, well, let me get my Bible. Just start into the conversation. You'll get to the Bible. You don't have to have it open every time you evangelize. Recite your verse and explain your verse. That's your short. Now, of course, there must be, I think, a more detailed summary of your Christian faith available as well, where, as, where you go through the system of doctrine we believe, beginning with God the Creator, man and his sin, so forth and so on. And if you need help in devising that, we have a little booklet, God's Good News, that we have used here in our congregation, where I go through the system of doctrine and lay out a lot of verses. You probably, you don't want something that detailed, uh, if you need something that detailed, it's available already. You can make use of it uh, if you wish. But you need something probably halfway between the one-verse presentation and all that that we have in the booklet. 
that you are able to go through systematically. So that when your neighbor says, yeah, I'd like to know more about this, you can say, okay, let's go over this and start in and then come back next week and the next week and finally get through the whole presentation if need be. You need to have apologetical answers thought through, ready to go. You need a summary. I'm suggesting two, a brief one and a little bit longer detailed one. A summary of your faith prepared in advance. Don't try to make it up as you go along. Don't try to have all these things come to your mind. When all of a sudden God opens this wonderful opportunity, you say, now what do I say? Be prepared. Thirdly, I'm hitting ABCs, I know, but they're ones that you keep forgetting about. I do. Pray. I want you to pray in preparation for evangelism. And I want you to pray for five things in particular. Five things, and you should pray for them every day. First, pray for the true love of Christ. For the true love of Christ. Pray that Christ will give you more love for him. Remember what Paul said, the love of Christ constrains us. If you love him with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, you'll have to speak. You'll have to. So pray that God will make you love him more. Secondly, pray for true love for men that will make you care. One of the reasons why we don't evangelize, can I be honest, is because we are indifferent to the plight of men. We are selfish and self-centered. We say, well, look, I'm going to heaven, and I've got things to do. I've got to go mow the lawn. I've got my business to take care of. I've got family situations to work out. I can't take time to tell this person about this, and I can't worry about devising a strategy to get through to this person. And I want to suggest that shows that you don't love your neighbor as yourself. That isn't the way you'd want to be treated. And the reason we get away with it is because since your neighbor doesn't expect you to be evangelizing and nobody's checking up on you, it doesn't show up anywhere until you have a morning like this morning and the pastor challenges you to think about what you haven't been doing. Pray that God will give you a greater love for your neighbors and those with whom you work. Thirdly, pray for a divine preparation of hearts and an opening of doors of opportunity. You know, Arminians ought to be the worst evangelists. They really should. Because they figure they've got to go and make every opportunity for themselves. God doesn't prepare hearts if you hold to Arminian theology. God doesn't change minds. God doesn't open doors of opportunity. We've got to make our own breaks. So we've got to get out there and get to as many people and have all these psychological devices? No, we don't. We need to pray that God... If you have a person you've been working with for three years who haven't evangelized, do say, God, would you prepare that person's heart and work our conversation around to this at some point? Prepare that person's heart. Open a door for me. Fourthly, pray for courage to take the opportunity. And how many times in my life have I made the mistake of praying that God would open the door and then he did and I went, oh, No, you have to ask that God will give you courage that when you see this open, you say, well, this is a great time to say something about the Lord that you won't say, oh, well, but maybe there'll be a better one coming. No, no. When you see that opportunity, courage to take it. And fifthly, pray for wisdom to say the right things on that occasion. Pray for wisdom that you won't barge in there and treat people like a piece of uh, factory-produced equipment that just goes through assembly line. Treat them as individuals. You see, Jesus did that with the woman at the well. When he meets this woman at the well, he meets her at the point of her need. He talks about water that he can give. 
And see, he doesn't start bringing up a subject she didn't have any... He didn't say, now, what do you think the day of judgment's going to be like? She wasn't thinking about that, and it would have, it would have been a very um, uh, difficult transition, I think, to get her involved in thinking about religious things if he would have taken that approach. He instead, he saw what she needed. He met her needs at a level deeper than she realized. And we have to do that too. And we can't do it if we aren't wise and if we aren't sensitive to what people need, where they are in their lives. Obviously, if there's been a death in the family, those who are grieving have a particular kind of need that you should approach in that way. If somebody's having financial problems, or if somebody's living a life of riot and excess, all of these people have a different mental focus, and they have different emotional needs. We should try to reach them. So pray for wisdom to say the right things on the right occasion. Apologetical answers. Start making a list now of what you can say when people say, but what about this? Have a summary of your faith ready, a brief one with one verse in particular that you've memorized and a more detailed expression of the system of doctrine. And pray for love for Christ. Pray for love for fellow men. Pray for divine preparation. Pray for courage. Pray for wisdom, parenthetically, and pray every day for these things. And then one last suggestion. Have specific plans. Have specific plans. One of the ways in which we have evade our evangelistic obligation, I think, is by, by just leaving it very general. God, somewhere, sometime, with somebody, make it possible for me to give a message about Jesus. No. No, I want you to pray for that next-door neighbor. I want you to plan specifically as to how to invite that person to church, how to do something for them that shows that you have an interest in their life, how you can have a conversation arise, things of the Lord involved. What I'm saying here is do your homework. Don't expect God to do all your homework and make it all planned out, and then you just kind of fall into the right slot. Now I'm over here, I'm in the right place saying the right thing. No, you've got a plan. You've got a plan to pray. You need to pray for specific people and work for specific situations to come up. That's how we overcome our guilty silence. Do you have any questions? Would you like to ask me at this point, even though we don't normally have questions at this time, I, since this is kind of a practical equipping period, I'd like to make sure that you understand what I've said. I'd also like to make sure, if I could embarrass you, that you're all going to do this. You know, How many of you are going to stand up and commit yourself to doing all ten of the things I've told you today? I won't make you do that, but I trust that all of you would stand up if I said it. Do you have any questions you'd like to ask me? How you can approach people? How you can start talking when you've not been a person accustomed to doing that? Good. Well, now we're ready to conquer the world. And, okay. Well, my last, my last point about being specific had to do with planning a time and a way in which you can get close to this person, and whether it's inviting them to church or engaging in a discussion about, say, a loved one who's died in the family, whatever it may be, you need to think ahead and plan specifically for that. But now as you get into that specific encounter, every situation is going to be different. And I think 
um, we tend, in most evangelistic courses, there's this idea that you approach it uh, looking for the time you're going to say, shall we pray together, okay? I'm not real comfortable with that myself, and I'm not really sure that it's biblical either. What I want to do is I want to keep laying that message out there and challenging them that they too have to commit their life to the Lord. And at some point they're going to say, well, what must I do to be saved? They may not use the biblical terminology. They may, they may say it in a very kind of strange and, in a way, humorous way. Um, but you need to see that what they're saying is, but what do I do? I mean, I hear this, I understand it, what do I do now? And that's when you say, well, the first thing you need to do is talk to God. And I'd be happy to help you do that. Let's talk together to God. Okay? Rather than pushing to a certain point, and then you tell somebody who's not prepared for that, shall we pray? They don't know what to say. If they've been interested at all, they, they have to say yes, because otherwise it sounds like they're being rebellious. But they may not really be interested, and they may be feeling very awkward about doing that. And I won't mention any names here, but I'm sure you know who I'm talking about. There are certain evangelistic organizations who think that's the epitome of success, to get to closing the sale and saying, shall we pray, and have people say yes. That doesn't make a Christian. That may make a hypocrite. And so instead of pressing for that point, I think I would just lay the message out and challenge them. You need to get right with God. You need to get right with God. And finally say, okay, well, how do I get right with God? And at that point you say, well, we need to pray. And I'd be glad to either tell you what to pray or to pray with you right now. Let the person show that they're prepared to do that. Yes. Yes, obviously um, following up a conversion experience is uh, crucial. Uh, I liken what you've just talked about, having the prayer of conversion and then just dropping the person to an obstetrician who would deliver a baby and then leave the baby on the floor and walk out and say, well, we did our job. No, not nearly enough. You see, that's just the beginning of the process. Uh, and if you evangelize in the friendship manner of evangelism that we stress in our congregation, I'm not against evangelizing strangers, buttonhole evangelism, but I do think we need to concentrate on this, who we see all the time. If we do that, you're going to continue to see this person. And you need to become an encouragement. You need to show them how to read their Bible every day, get them into a good church, um, go over and pray with them. You know, we mustn't think that when people become a Christian, then all of a sudden everything's sweetness and light and things are fine in their life. No, what you'd expect is things are going to get tough in their life now. And if you abandon them at that point and don't counsel and help them through the tough times, uh, that is as bad as an obstetrician who abandons the baby on the delivery room floor and says, well, I've done my job. Yeah, follow-up is crucial in evangelism. But, of course, my focus today is not so much on follow-up as get, getting you going in the first place, to start talking to people. Well, it's a warm afternoon. We've gone a little over time. Let's pray. Father, please do take away our guilty silence. Take away our guilt because Jesus died in the place of sinners such as we are. Give us the assurance that we stand right with you, that you do forgive us and love us. And indeed, just out of that assurance, help us to not be silent. Believing as we do in you, help us to speak, to be your witnesses, to give testimony to you, Help us to do it in a winsome, in a courageous way. We trust that we will be bold, Lord, as you guide us to speak words that are true, words which may indeed be difficult to accept, hurtful words to our hearers, and yet spoken in such a way that we show that these words have first humbled us, have softened us, and have become words of real hope and joy to us so that they might become such 
to those with whom we speak. Lord, we pray right now that you would make each and every one of us committed to doing the practical things that have been brought up in this afternoon's message, those practical things which surely can lead us out of a life of silence into one of true testimony for Jesus Christ. Help us to do these things. Help us not to file away our notes someplace and to forget about them. Help us to begin on a daily basis to develop a life of testimony and witness for you. And Lord, we pray that you would prepare the hearts of the many people with whom we come into contact. Prepare their hearts to hear the testimony that we want to present, that they might be drawn into the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, even as we have been. Help us to keep our minds focused on that, that you are the Lord of life, that you're the one who gives evangelistic success and that you're the one who deserves all the glory for the results that follow. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.